do you want to start by doing this cryptocurrency thing? Or you want to? Just- I, I, yeah. First off, will you read the title? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read me the title of the of this YouTube video. Buying four hundred fifty million Ripple question mark one billion Ripple XRP buy XRP Ripple cryptocurrency. <laughs> I like <laughs> like I just don't understand. This is a real it's from thing. an account called Crypto Coin News. This is journalism. how much news is there? Dude, I mean, there's a lot of news an infinite, just in the an title. Infinite amount. Okay, can you just, what am I, what are we about to watch? I, all right. As far as I can tell, <laughs> yeah, there are other crypto coins besides Bitcoin. And I think one of them is called Ripple. So then imagine there's like a community of, a, of crypto coin <laughs> traders. And, you know, and in their crypto wallets, they got a few different coins in the, in their effort to, you know, to prosper cryptoly. They need some journalism on the latest taps. All right. Let's hear, let's hear about this motherfucking Ripple. Welcome back to Crypto Coin News today. Over $2.70. I really thought that was one of you doing a joke voice. (laughs) This is the Kai Rizdal of Crypto Marketplace. This is what I'm trying to tell you. Welcome back to Crypto Coin News. Today, (laughs) Ripple has soared to over (laughs) $2.70. And the community around it is going mad. How much did it soar to? I, I can't. I, I, can't, I can't even, even believe do this. this. <laughs> I, can't so I really, I would like the idea that we're like <laughs> in some asymptotic laugh factory, where the further we get in the video, the more we laugh. It's absolutely beyond parody. That it's tone so- of voice, and to say Ripple is sore. No one has ever heard of Ripple or what used the word Ripple. What are you talking about? Well, the past participle of sore. <laughs> Ripple has sore. It's sore. Welcome back to Crypto Coin News. Today, Ripple has sore to over two dollars and. Seventy cents, and the community around it is going mad. And we just saw one of the biggest Ripple transactions in the history of Ripple go through, where someone bought four hundred and fifty million Ripple tokens. But before we get into the news, guys, do not forget to subscribe and turn on post notifications if you're new around here. We do three to five cryptocurrency news stories every single day, covering all sorts of variety of cryptocurrency, altcoins, and even some crypto news. So if you're a cryptocurrency investor or looking to invest looking subscribing to, invest. to us might be a smart start as we try to cover everything we possibly can it's not a video at all so much as a still <laughs> screenshot of his computer in other words i see his <laughs> the web ads that he is being served are for toilet paper and kroger and they're in the screenshot that is the video i can't believe he does he does five a day and he wants you not just to subscribe but to get the notifications like he, he's yeah, like, like if you're out and about you wanted to come yeah. through. If you missed one of my five Ripple posts today, you're going to be lost as a crypto investor or someone looking to invest. Because <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, but the Ripple community is going mad. So let's start a conversation down below in the comment section. I what currencies are you agree. invested in currently? What, what coins are you excited about? Are you invested in Ripple? <laughs> and what do you think of this 450 million token <laughs> buy? Okay, so let's get right Can't into the news. As you can see, Ripple is comfortably sitting at $2.57. Comfortably. Um, it's trading right now in some of the currency exchanges like Bitstamp for $2.11. Okay. But right oh. here on what? coinmarketcap.com, they're saying two fifty seven. <laughs> now let's show you guys this Reddit post that's been upvoted to the top of the Ripple Reddit. <laughs> this is actually a good place to kind of find... Uh, 
I mean, we are using as a source of authority that a post has been upvoted to the top also, of the Ripple Reddit. Did he just say like I don't want? I didn't even know how to even start. First off, he said it has soared to two seventy, but depending on which crypto is two eleven over on yeah, and he, and it's something that's only worth two dollars having a fifty cent variation, not in time but in location. What yeah. what exchange you're using is that I, extreme? I forget, I forget who tweeted this point. Like it doesn't actually make sense to talk about market cap of a currency. Right. That yeah, really this is, is Matt Brunig. Yeah, that's. It's a Matt Brunig point. I, I so it's admitting that this is an investment vehicle, which is sort of belies the whole little premise that he has. I laughed so hard, and I don't even know if it's a dumb point or not. It just sounded so funny to me during like some this Bitcoin craze to see a pro Bitcoin dude on Twitter get like so angry when he's like, "The value of Bitcoin has not crashed. One Bitcoin is still worth one Bitcoin. Its its value hasn't crashed that's, at all." That's it's the crazy. true economist yeah. right there. It's, it's Trading value with one currency, dollars, yeah. has gone through a minor like <laughs> correction, but its value isn't affected at all. Dude. I was just like, dude, that is the way fucking, to own the discourse. That's my hilarious. <laughs> despite <laughs> uh, despite the actions of the Washington tyrant, <laughs> yeah. all of my slaves are still worth exactly one <laughs> yeah, slave. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? But I stumbled upon this. So as you can see, four hundred and fifty million XRP were purchased. The actual amount delivered, $450 million. That is insane. That was today at 5.57 p.m. Um, and it's a client, so it's one single person. It's got to be one single person. I would assume that's what client means. He has so no idea. He doesn't know anything. A calculator. Uh, calculator. Okay, so literally opening his Windows calculator. App. Let's just assume this is such good that was Eastern Standard Time. Let's just so assume. Great, great right now, for me, it's about 10 p.m. So let's okay. rewind the clock. What time it is? Even. About uh, five hours, All just right. to be safe. <laughs> so five hours ago, one energy drink ago, with Ripple. Get some Ripple. <laughs> this is going to be screen. something. Uh, okay, so five hours ago, let's continue to go down. So right now we're sitting at three thirty-four. So let's get to ten. He's running there his mouse along a line graph. <laughs> So we're trading at like let's just say safely two eighteen. Okay. Okay. So let's pull up this calculator really quick. Yeah, sure. So two dollars and eighteen cents times four hundred and fifty million. million dollars. Ripple. Ripple. Uh, (laughs) They spent nine hundred and eighty-one million dollars on Ripple. That is wait. That is insane. That's almost a billion dollars. It's true. It is. Isn't it? They shy. keep using the word insane, not realizing how appropriate it is. One person put a billion dollars in Ripple. There was a billion dollar Ripple transaction. No like way. Five hours ago, according <laughs> to him. But he doesn't really know what he's looking at. He's like, client, that's probably a person. <laughs> it's like that, how I read in my business. I don't max. even understand. A Ripple transaction? One <laughs> billion dollars spent on Ripple. That That is, it's ex, it's exciting, it's insane, yeah. and it's also a little terrifying <laughs> because someone's holding that much Ripple. That's so much Ripple. It's a blue guy from Avatar. Six ways to Sunday. <laughs> um, give me, give me. A second. Okay, here's here's one called: Is Amazon finally poised for a complete retail takeover? This is Marketplace. I'm Adrian Hill. CVS is reportedly offering sixty-six billion dollars to buy health insurer Aetna. 
And there's a lot at play here. But one reason behind the bid may be concerned that Amazon is eyeing the prescription Amazon. drug market. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported Amazon has approval to be a wholesale drug distributor in at least 12 states. What a great idea. And Amazon's disruption of retail overall seems to be working. The company announced way better than expected quarterly sales you, numbers that's yesterday. That's how you draw a Spencer Soper with us now from Bloomberg. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Let's start with Amazon's seeming interest in the drug industry. These what do you robots. expect there? There's a lot of speculation around it. This is most likely tied to their business-to-business end of things, where they actually want to supply B2B? offices with uh, office supplies, factories with parts, and then also you know hospitals, doctors' offices, dentists' offices. It looks more Other likely offices. a... Uh, business supply operation than retail pharmacy operation. So maybe not where I go get my penicillin. Not yet. Penicillin. (laughs) But that's the the speculation is that they'll ultimately get into the retail pharmacy business and and that uh, uh, their purchase of Whole Foods just intensified that because so many That's other the opposite of his supermarkets and and big box stores that sell groceries also have pharmacies in them. Can I just pause a second? What, What happened there is absolute speculative nonsense, right? Yes. Yeah. We've like learned a thing about Amazon. They've like gotten approval to operate as a wholesale drug provider. First off, they they could be doing B two B with a focus on getting supplies right. to offices, doctors' offices. No, this is not the place you're going to go and get your penicillin. Then again, with their purchase of Whole Foods, right. they're looking to get into the retail side of things. You know, not B two B, straight to see the and customer. The, and all of that is just that no, there's no information they are citing. It just is like, what do we know about Amazon, and what ideas can I come up with based on what, what about, if they were to sell yeah, drugs? Like the whole point of this segment is to make the person listening to it feel like they have the overall top-down like right. map view of the world that business people want to think they have. And it produces that feeling by giving a gross simplification that's generally demonstrably false. One. Yeah, which can contain internal inconsistencies. Yeah, yeah. They also sort of treat companies, in this case, as if they're actual beings. Like, they they're just a do. step away from being like, how grumpy is Amazon? Amazon's feeling real grumpy. And that could mean, like, you know, this is going to be an expensive Christmas unless Amazon gets in a better mood because CVS finally sends them a birthday message. <laughs> there is speculation, he says passively, not telling yeah, us exactly. who is speculating, about this giant abstract being which is actually controlled by people. The richest person in the world. Uh, the business marketplace is a big one, and that's actually a lot bigger you know, it's a very broad category, a dentist's Business. office, a doctor's Business. office, a hospital, a university, all of these places <laughs> need I've supplies. I've listed things. And unlike shoppers, still, shoppers still like to go to the store. Business people would really love to avoid having to run out and do an errand and buy things. Shoppers like and a the lot store. of that ordering is still done the old-fashioned way, kind of Dunder Mifflin paper people <laughs> type office type thing, you know. Right. He's um, phone calls and paper uh, order forms and doctor's faxes. Office, dentist, so doctor's there's Dunder a lot Mifflin. of opportunity for Amazon to disrupt that space, and what space? Uh, also would would lend itself probably to a higher ceiling in terms of the number of transactions that would go online. Uh, so he just accused business people of disliking going out on errands, right? For like your jet turbine parts when you're Northrop Grumman, like he, he's, he's trying to explain the concept of a supply chain yep. by saying that business people don't like to go to the store the way you and I plebs do. <laughs> Consumers, they shoppers, see, appear to, the shoppers seem to like stores, and yeah. uh, businesses in their market ceiling, they don't. I mean, it's completely 
it's so Madness. it's it's like I don't even know how to say it. they clearly have no plan and he's not making necessary distinctions like yeah his example for what's like a business to business provider in the supply chain is Dunder Mifflin the fictional paper selling right. entity from the show The Office like, there's a way in which this is a fake story it's as if you're not supposed to be listening it's like you're supposed to be driving yeah and talking to the kids, and you just end up being like, oh, CVS. I heard a thing about Amazon the yeah, other day. Amazon they're going to be B2B it. Or, but they're long-term, they may like be not B2B. Yeah, yeah. You, you know penicillin? This is NPR's flagship economics fucking show. If you're in one of these Dunder Mifflins of the world who's major living selling business supplies to businesses, how do you try to prepare for Amazon's move into that space? Well, a lot of them already are, and you know you're trying to oh, to embrace digital as much as you can. So, um, embrace so digital. Amazon is best at replenishment. Mm-hmm. You know, you need uh, these certain things over and over again. Where they're not so great is on solutions. Uh-huh. So that's where a lot of these uh, business to business suppliers, if they're in the business of, pro- of of helping you solve a problem, you know you need something. You're not sure exactly what you need. You might need to speak to someone. What? Amazon's not good at that. You don't really get Amazon on the phone to walk through a transaction. Okay, what? It's wildly unrigorous. Okay, so in this guy's world, businesses have two needs. Replenishment? Replenishment, which is what happens when you already have the solution, but the solution needs to be replenished from time to time. (laughs) That's right, but what if you don't have the solution? And then solutions, the thing where you have a problem, but you don't know, you don't even know how to get to the thing that needs replenishment. I can't can't get that solution by saying like, Alexa, I need a solution to this problem or whatever. You need someone on the phone is the main thing he suggests. Not someone in a store because he's already told us these business people don't like the store and Amazon can't can't help them to just it turns machine. out buying things to business people is a solution. But I don't know what to buy. I need a phone man to teach me about things that I could buy. You know, at my fictional paper company. We really should embrace digital, guys. I wonder if the web uh, <laughs> computer uh, software would have interfacing for solution-wise. If I want to make brownies, I have two requirements. I need the recipe, which is the solution, and I need the ingredients, which are the replenishments. That, now you're thinking like a business. I mean... The problem is that solutions uh, are just the recipe, not the question of whether you should be, I don't know, making Agent Orange or whatever. There's This is status quo maintenance. There's no, it is impossible you could think one thing and then listen to a story like this and have a different thing yeah. that you think come of it. You just heard a bunch of words. And what's Amazon's end game? What do they want? They want to sell everything to everybody. And that's not just buying things and reselling things. It's also being a middleman. And that puts them in the middle of a, tremendous amount of, of businesses and just kind of gets the Amazon tentacles reaching further and wider uh, into our economy. Spencer Soper from Bloomberg, thanks so much. They Thank want you. to sell everything to everybody. That's not just buying and selling. That's also being a middleman. <laughs> what? What? Okay, so what are the things in addition to buying and selling that being a middleman is? I have no solutions? fucking idea. <laughs> Replenishing solutions? My understanding of being a middleman is I buy from one person and then sell it to another person. Yeah. And I'm in the middle. That's not right? He wants to, if you want to do want that my tentacles out there, Amazon, it supplies the drugs to an Amazon-owned CVS, yeah. which sells the drugs to, I don't like, know. Like an Amazon-owned Prime subscriber. It's, as we originally imagined, an all-Alexa poker game. Like, yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't quite go with that image. I mean, like, but the craziest thing to me is that he even uses that fucking keyword, tentacle, yeah. and uh, there's no moral valence or weight no. to what he just said. Nope. He used the word tentacle in a, oh, I would say, a neutral way. It's, it's like, like, what's the end game? Well, it's... Uh, 
total global uh, tentacling. And uh, anyway, thanks. I'm Spencer that, Silver. That should have been the first question <laughs> in a certain way is talk about what is Amazon trying to do it's to start with. They're obviously trying to sell everything to everybody. How is that being made to happen? And what are the downsides and upsides? If you sell everything to everybody, you're by definition a monopoly. If you sell everything to everybody, you're a market. I mean, you're more than <laughs> you're a monopoly. The economy. Yeah, you're the economy. Like, if you sell all the oil, you're a monopoly. Hey, he's saying the, the quiet part loud there. Yeah. They're not into solutions. They're into replenishment, which is probably what Bezos would want to say as he's getting the tentacles everywhere. He'd say, like, we're not going to come and figure out what you need. That's There are still going to be other businesses that do that. But the truth is, no one cares, really. Mm-mm. Nope. All right, you want to hear this one? This one is called Why Accountants Can't Wait for the New Tax Bill. This refers to the most recent tax bill passed by Congress. Indeed, but uh, it comes from a time before it was passed. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. We end somewhat as we began today in the weeds of the Internal Revenue Code. While Paul Manafort and Rick Gates assemble their defenses against charges of, among other things, fraudulent tax practices, the people whose livelihoods depend on faithful interpretation of the tax code are paying especially close attention to what's going on in Congress right now. As I said earlier, the GOP tax plan is set to come out on Wednesday. And for accountants, changes to it are money in the bank, more business to them. What keeps them up at night, though, is the never-ending game of what's in the bill today. It's like a human interest story, not an economic story. Nancy Marshall Genzer reports that for accountants, this bill cannot get across the finish line fast enough. What? Last year, when Hollywood released a big-budget thriller starring Ben Affleck as an accountant-turned-ruthless killer, Kim Dula was all over it. I actually watched it twice. I watched it once with my husband. The accountant has evaded every government agency. It's like and they're then she playing made her kids watch it. And I said, see, your mom really isn't just a dorky CPA. Dula Incorrect. loves danger and suspense on screen, but not in her accounting uh, practice. Uh-oh. The suspense and uncertainty around the tax plan are killing her clients. Dula says they're in a frenzy about the fate of their cherished deductions. <laughs> is it going to expire? Oh, and is it God. going to come back? And are they going to make it retroactive? Frenzy. Dula says keeping clients' blood pressure under control comes with the territory. <laughs> what the that's fuck? sort of our job, and that's what we're here that's for. Sort of our but job. the uncertainty is hard. Hard on accountants. They need that tax law signed, sealed, and delivered so I'm they can get to their real insane. What they're paid for, discovering new loopholes to exploit. Brian Thompson oh, is an accountant not. in Little Rock, uh, Arkansas. He says, obviously, you start with the big stuff. Uh, they're basically saying that uh, not passing the tax bill causes uncertainty. Yep. So For accountants. For accountants everywhere are trying to cool the hungry public. Now, accountants, um, is it important how they see themselves or what they responded to the Ben Affleck movie, The Accountant? They avoid government uh, detection like Ben Affleck, yeah. the assassin, and their job is to find loopholes to exploit? They That, that was that was said, right? That was yeah. said. Didn't dream that? I and, mean, like like the, the incredible thing to contemplate is that the producer of this segment on Marketplace... Nancy Marshall Genzer? Yeah, is trying to... S- slip this interpretation of accountancy in just it's not even a, it's not even problematic for her she's like of course the accountants there are trying to figure out how to exploit the loopholes in the code so they're palpitating a little bit sweatily if it were uh, problematic to her she's taking the single coolest most ironic stance possible and on I that problem and I don't I think mean, that's what's going on it's actually as I think about it this is so much worse than you even realize at first why why mention Paul Manafort at the beginning only to sort of say like hey by the way bad actors do get caught 
Like, don't worry if anybody was evil about all this. Like, they're going to jail. This is a much cooler thing. You're looking for, like, uncertainties what's bad. Let's get this thing over the finish line. Like, this is not the case. There are definitely accountants I mean, all it, over the world who don't represent incredibly rich people who are terrified that yeah, their right. kid who's at grad school is going to be fucked by this bill or they're in a blue state and they can't deduct like their taxes already yeah. paid. And, and further, according to the story that follows Kai's charming anecdote about uh, Manafort, Manafort is in jail or going to jail because he didn't have a clever enough fucking account. That's yeah, exactly right. right. That's right. I watched it twice. I mean, to bring Hollywood in is so fucking unbelievable. And to act like the uncertainty is created by not passing a bill as opposed to passing a bill where you're like keeping the text like secret, yeah. having it not be bipartisan. I mean, what an evasion of doing your job. What a way to not tell the story and do it out. It takes totally for granted the idea that like the only reason why we need to get the tax code straight is so that accountants can like figure it all out, figure out the games, and then when you come into your accountant's office, you can stop crying or your blood pressure can go down. That's the role of the tax code in your life. It takes all that for granted. Which is to say, it takes for granted that the listener of this segment has enough money, they'll never be personally affected, let alone devastated it, it, that's right. by this cocksucker of a bill. That's it, your account. I feel job. like this is like interviewing people who sell cotton pre-Civil War. Yeah, yeah. All of this uncertainty caused by Lincoln's yeah. like hatred of the cotton industry where they're like, sure is hurting business. <laughs> but not all accountants are created equal. So what separates the really successful yes, loophole hunters us. from everybody else? It's being able to uh, play chess rather than checkers. Michael Gratz teaches tax law at Columbia Law School. You've got to see several moves ahead rather than just one or two. It's like identifying a novel way to create a loss that can offset taxable gains. Gratz says it helps to have an opponent who's not quite as skilled. You often have world champion chess players playing against, if not amateurs, uh, much lower He's talking paid about Congress busier here, right? professionals. No, the best Those accountants the professionals versus the, at the IRS. IRS. But at the moment, the there's not much for anyone to work with. The Republicans' tax outline is only nine pages. The last time we had reform, the Reagan administration released nearly 500 pages of detailed proposals way in advance. Now, that was something accountants could obsess yeah. over. Why, why, why would it be important to release a bill months in advance, 500 so pages? So the accountants can figure out how they feel about it. All right, so this is fundamentally a story about how uh, the destruction of the federal government at the hands of the Republican Party is really most painful to accountants who can't like pregame by pouring over the new tax code. This uncertainty is so yeah. bad for accountants, but they framed it as a, the solution to that uncertainty is to get the bill past the finish line, not releasing more than nine pages yeah. about the bill. Not, we need more time and information, but get it over the finish line. The guy talks about playing chess or whatever, which is incredible. That, In other words, he thinks about his knowledge of and navigation through the tax world as though it is like skill-based gamesmanship. And so he just wants the full rules. It's value neutral as to what the rules are. I just need them so I can master them and beat the amateurs. Yes. That's what he's saying. Yes. It's, yeah, it just is The so amateurs here are the federal government. Yeah, the internal revenue servicers. She mentions the end of deductions for local taxes, yes, right? Local and taxes. then- she doesn't like create a pause or ask really a question. She's like, but you know, they've got to make up for like those losses. And then she's very quickly going like, now we'll talk to a tax expert from Columbia. And her question is not, 
explain the meaning of this, right. of what it means what would to it have, mean to yeah. get rid of this. How will it affect different people differently? How do accounts in different places like respond to this? Instead, she's like, what's it like? What's your strategy? And he's like, no, I want to do chess. She's imagining she's a fucking sports journalist, not a journalist embedded in the heart of the American political it's economy. It all seems so low stakes for all of these people. It's a fucking book report by somebody who hasn't read the book. Yeah. It's that, It's a shortcut. This is We're talking accounts instead of tax policy because it's cheaper and faster. It's like exactly what you do if you had to do a show every fucking day. In, in a sense, what a journalist is, is somebody who can take a very technical, wonky subject and find the story with a capital S to adapt it to the minds of people who don't do this shit for a living. And her way of adapting the gigantic story of America's economy being rewritten by a bullshit tax policy change is to talk to accountants. It's being a drug dealer instead of being a doctor in a way. You're not informing the people, but they sort they feel a little better because yeah. they, they heard you say all these words about the tax bill, and then they walk away like, oh, I learned about that, but they didn't. They just not took an opioid. I hate this fucking cool head-ism or yeah. whatever. No one wants to deal with politics at all. Yeah. And so it's not that they're like so committed to one political stance or, or another. It's just like when we contemplate big structural changes as a part of uh, trying to solve our political fucking situation right now, that's dis distasteful to these people. And yeah. it just seems like these people running the show, the economy, the economy show on NPR, it's just like they don't want to get in the weeds with anything because that's abhorrent as such. Yeah, and furthermore, not wanting to get into the weeds of politics and to talk about it is not apolitical. It's intensely ideological, and the ideology you're pledging allegiance to is called neoliberalism. <laughs> This one is really bad. It's called, Does Trickle-Down Economics Make Any Sense? In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. Uh. Tuesday, the 7th of November. Good as always to have you along, everybody. And it really is, by the way. I know mm. I say that, but it really is. He really is. We begin today with you. two news In a updates. biopic a of him, Rob Schneider. It's so my pick to plan. And then a turn to economic theory from days gone by. The topic at hand, of course, is the GOP's tax bill. So far, we have covered this thing six ways from Sunday. Credits, deductions, Ugh. exemptions, you name it. But being Credits, in the home stretch you name it. brings up some basic economic questions. Most specifically, will these tax cuts grow the economy in a way that will benefit everybody? Can't Boy. wait to hear this evidence. Seemingly simple idea. Very different answers on either side of the economic aisle. Marketplace's <sighs> Tracy Samuels. The economic aisle. Okay, I want to pause here. The question that he has arrived at after all that schmaltz is... Will the tax fucking reform bill help people? Help yeah. the economy? Help Americans. <laughs> Wages? So we have uh, less than a minute and a half to answer that question. So he's going to assess the present and assess the future in terms of economic evidence and arguments by bringing in a team of experts who are going to look at the numbers. He's throwing it to Tracy in 90 seconds. Is, yep. Wait, is, this, is Tracy a middleman between Kai and, and her expert economist? I can't. I don't know what a middleman is. So. <laughs> Here's an ad out today that pretty much sums up the tax cuts help us all argument. Plain it's put out by the Business Roundtable. Tax reform, in our opinion, can help the economy grow. If the economy grows faster, companies like ours invest more. We hire more. Wages go up. The guy talking owns a business that makes engine parts. And yeah, Gordon Gray, director of fiscal policy at the American Action Forum, yeah. says that's basically how it works. Lower corporate taxes do spur investment. When a company is looking to build a factory or make a new investment, it looks at its what will the return to that investment be? Is it worth it? Lowering the corporate rate essentially makes that decision easier. Oh my God. And so it encourages that investment. That investment, Gray says, will increase productivity, which will uh, increase wages. Sort of an economic chain reaction. Simple <laughs> enough, or is it? Kaboom. Okay, let's pause it right there. 
This has been simplified to such a, a an offensive degree by the NPR people. Yes, and the, the NPR people played an ad where the advocacy group is just saying tax reform isn't saying lower t- right. corporate tax rates because there it's an advertisement, not an informative <laughs> argument. And they just go right over that and they pretend that tax reform automatically means lower corporate tax rate, which is absurd. And I think now we switch over to the other side of the economic aisle, a term Kyle Stahl invented. (laughs) Sort of an economic chain reaction. Simple enough, or is it? Jared Bernstein is is a senior fellow for the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. I'm not saying there might not be some uh, effects in terms of investment or productivity or wages. This is our leftist. But those effects have been found to be very small, and that's in a well-designed tax plan. Uh, This one is not particularly well designed. Bill Clinton raised taxes and growth was solid. Ronald Reagan cut taxes and growth was pretty good. And by the way, then Ronald Reagan raised taxes 11 times. And again, growth was decent during his term. The fact is that these tweaks to the tax code are just not the determinants of economic growth. He says the economic chain reaction sounds good in theory, but in practice, I'm Tracy Samuelson for Marketplace. Tracy. Tracy, you, you, you seem to end in the middle of a sentence, Tracy. It's called a cliffhanger, Kai. <laughs> what the fuck, Tracy? It's not like the reason NBA players make more money now than they did like years ago is that like there's more basketball happening That's in right. the same amount of time. Yeah. It's that there's more money coming in and they got a better percentage of the profits. So, Through collective bargaining, you might add. Right, not because they just did so much basketball right. or or because some tax change happened that made the owners be like, hey, you know what? Let's give more money to the people playing basketball. Yeah, that's right. It's based, the, the, the whole theory rests on the idea that the owners or the bosses would act like the uh, party at a negotiating table automatically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which is and, manifestly untrue. And like the... The worst horseshit of all is this idea that because you're talking about a corporate tax rate, people imagine that a corporation is somehow making a decision here to reinvest or put the money somewhere else. The corporation is just a digestive tract for money where it shits out money into the bank account of the people who own stock in the corporation, right? So all we're talking about is what you tax on profit, on the leftover from your reinvestment. And you're, you're saying that if you take less of it from me, then I will put more of it back into the company. Which is to say, I'll keep it from my stockholders and put it back into the company. Right. Well, yeah, you'd reclassify the money you have control over. The only time I'd ever have... why would that make sense? If you go to a lemonade stand where you're making profits and you say, now you can keep a little bit more. Old government's going to take away a little bit less. They aren't going to do anything different to their lemonade stands or what they pay those people. Yeah. Right. It's meaningless. Obviously. I mean, yeah, the, the idea that a company would reward their workers because the workers generated money that the government took less of is uh, insane. It's insane. And of course, to zoom out from all this, this is not a new discussion we are having. No. And when Tracy Samuelson gets her hands on this little aporia, does trickle-down economics make any sense? She blows it in, like, I don't know, the most irresponsible way imaginable, where you get a guy on the right who, like, who parrots the guy on the right's ad for an, a supposed, quote-unquote, economic chain reaction, which she does not delve into in any kind of way, and then says some people don't agree that the chain reaction will happen. And then you hire, I don't know, I think a pretty ill-spoken guy who's like, Clinton did it, it was good, Reagan did it, it was bad, and then Reagan did the other thing, so it might not be good. And then she leaves it on the cliff for you, saying some people say it's a chain reaction, other people, goodbye. 
How could you be convinced that this is an okay thing to do in November of 2017? What? We didn't talk to any real people in a way or get That's any right. real ideas or have any real I'm discussion. Just sh- I'm so- I can't get over my shock that this is allowed to happen on NPR's airwaves. Yeah, a, a, a network that is in everyone's mind either liberal or demonized for being liberal. <laughs> right. Fucking disgraceful. F is for future. How to think about public media's next 50 years. A Knight Foundation white paper by Melody Kramer and Betsy O'Donovan. In public radio, there's this person we consider called Mary, said Sarah Alvarez, a recent John S. Knight journalism fellow at Stanford. Sometimes, when people are pitching stories, somebody will say, well, why would Mary care about that? And Mary is in her 50s, she's well-educated, she's white, she's affluent. And Mary is not Maria, you know? The Corporation for Public Broadcasting received $445 million in the previous federal budget, which supports 350 public television stations and 989 public radio stations. CPB's formula, set by statute in 1981, directs 75% of its funding to television and 25% to radio. By the 1980s, public radio, then fighting debt and major funding battles with Congress, was largely using audience research and focused their formats to attract a loyal audience that would be willing to support the stations financially. The audience research studies that drove public radio's shift were largely developed by David Giovannoni, a pioneer and occasionally polarizing figure in public media. Starting with Audience 88, he outlined who was most attracted to public media, what they liked, why they donated, and how much they listened. Giovannoni's audience research identified a core audience for public radio. They were middle-aged, college-educated, affluent, and interested in social issues, what Alvarez calls Marys. They didn't like children's shows or most music programming, and they listened a lot. That helped identify a strategy for the network, one that Giovannoni called Programming Causes Audience. Do the right thing. So easy, yet not. You know how I say the Dow Jones is not the economy all the time? Well, the bond market might actually be. Look, I hate to be the guy who says I told you so, but one day's turmoil does not a bear market make, y'all. So you know what's kind of funny? Honest to Pete, as I sat down to write today, my first draft said, hey, here is a working hypothesis for our lead story today. Wall Street is a jerk. In a pencil factory, one thing you'll find a lot of sharp points. We're going to whiz right past them. A fine-tuned machine, that's what this economy is, provided everything adds up right. So what do you like? Sexual picadillos. No healthcare on the program today. Healthcare, 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 healthcare. Nope. Monetary policy. Bet your eyes for elephants, it's a sinking ship. (laughs) 
bet your eyes for elephants. <laughs> we go live to a sinking ship on the ocean where we look at an emerging economy coming from price gougers selling life jackets. It's going to be a doozy and a gumball and a gorgon. This is Marketplace. Welcome to Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizzo. Happy to have you with us. Especially happy today because there's a sinking ship, <laughs> as we know. And on that ship, sources are saying our correspondents on the scene are reporting wild price gouging in the price markets of life jackets and other bare necessities. Our correspondent, Steve Durskill, has the story. Thanks, Kai. All the lifeboats here on this sinking ship are sold out, and what remains are just a few life jackets, and I can't help but notice the price of these life jackets is rising just a little bit faster than the water on the ship I'm standing on. The water, now up to my waist, sure makes me a eager, eager buyer of these life jackets. But our per diem doesn't quite allow me to afford the life jacket, which raises an interesting question. Is it fair to raise the price of life jackets as my per diem is too low to buy one? That's really what concerns me and the main moral problem here. Maybe I can borrow some money from one of the other destined to drown passengers. How much are you willing to pay for a life jacket? Do you have the money and uh, what are they charging for them now? Well, I, I, I exchanged all of my money for uh, spare champagne corks from the first class galley, and I've uh, strung them along to my infant son uh, Horace's chest, and I'm hoping he'll float in the frigid icy water. It does not look like he's floating. Oh, no, dear. Boy, this water is cold. It's getting tough. Uh, what I? So how much cash do you have? Is there? Do you think you'd be able to give me a quick loan? Because I am only twenty-four dollars short of the two thousand three hundred and forty-four dollars. I'm, I'm afraid that this, despite all appearances to the contrary, liquidity is a huge problem for me right now. Boy, liquidity seems to really be on the rise in this boat, actually. So, Steve, you snuck in a little dig at the marketplace per diem policy, and you. I just uh, wish it was a little higher. I hear you, Steve. Is uh, you know we got a cream rises to the top, Steve. So maybe if you you worked harder, you'd get a little more resources. If I promised to work harder for any number of years in the future, would you be willing to uh, credit me a little more in the per diem and uh, possibly- Steve, before we, let's put a pin in that. It looks like you've interviewed someone who's uh, had an interesting uh, tip on the champagne market on the sinking ship. Is there any chance you can talk to someone? Uh, uh, okay. I mean, yeah, I'd have to go into the cabin of the ship, which feels like Steve, a bit of a chance. Why don't you go ahead and go into the cabin of the sinking ship? Okay, it, I could be a little- Steve? And here is why we never increased his per diem, folks. Ship Seems like we lost Steve to his failure. <laughs> Do you wanna you wanna hear the round table? The weekly wrap? No, no, not really. Does this happen in every episode? This what? happens uh, once a week, I think. We gotta do it. We're soldiers. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizal. <laughs> Friday the 1st of September. Good as always to have you along, Hi, everybody. The end of a long week in this economy. And Congress comes back on Tuesday. Sounds like just about five minutes Wait, worth of live radio to me. Doesn't he sound so much like the guy in Die Hard who thinks he can negotiate yeah, with yeah. the terrorists? He doesn't want to blow. Yeah, yeah. He's tightens like, his tie. He's like, hey, baby, we can do business. Hey. Neil Richardson is at Redfin. Cardiff Garcia is at the aforementioned FT, the FT Alphaville blog. Hey, everybody. 
Hi, Kai. Sunil, let me start with you. Uh, we'll go to jobs real quick first because uh, I think we probably have to. 156,000 <laughs> new jobs, less than what everybody had been guessing. Unemployment everybody. rate ticks up to 4.4%, so we'll give it a firm meh. I want to touch base meh. on wages, though, with you. A Still not going anywhere. Meh. No, they're still stuck. Uh, and everyone kind of expected for everyone. jobs to underperform. They've always done that in August, at least the last few years. So that's mm-hmm. not surprising. What? What's still surprising is that wages aren't growing. And and that My kind of belies all the, the myths in the jobs market that there's a skills gap and that there's a lot of slack and they don't all work this hard other enough. stuff. What we really need to see improvement in the economy is wage growth, and we're still yeah. not there. Okay, but how come, Neil? I mean, seriously, because this is your thing, right? And, and we've talked about this now for years, you and I. Why are wages not growing? Are they going to kill it? The economy is just not as productive as it used to be. And there's a lot of reasons why that could be. It could be that, you know, there's no new technology that's spurring productivity along. Look around. Corporations are not investing enough. It could be that workers have the wrong skills. But it's not something that is attributable to a business cycle, just the natural Hmm. up and down of the market. There is something seismic Uh, happening in the labor market, and it really is going to take some federal level investments to change That's the trajectory true. of wages. What's, what's the like, we can't stay what's on autopilot anymore and expect wages to go up. We've done that for about seven or eight years now. All right. Fair enough. Oh, fair enough. Longer. Didn't use the oh, word union boy, once. Oh, boy. If only there were some federal investment option for the labor market. What does that mean? Oh, also, tying wages to productivity is so silly. It's like wages stopped rising with productivity like in 1970 or something yeah. crazy. Wages right? have been flat since, oh, I don't know, the decline of unions. I mean, I know that she's just rattling off a list at, uh, and answering a, a Kai Rizdal question, but it does sort of reinforce the as though the equivalency of these options. Like, it could be that the workers are dumb, dumb, shitty dumb heads and they don't have the right skills, or it could be that corporations aren't investing their money into paying laborers. Why might one that or the be? other? <laughs> I'm the economic analyst. When have wages ever gone up? And what was happening would be a question I'd like to see looked yeah. at. Yeah, August is always. I mean, in fairness, she gets back to federal investment in the labor market, but uh, how did she manage to make that sound like nothing? Yeah. It's incredible. It's yeah. like a sticker. I mean, wages really skyrocketed after the abolition of slavery. Yeah, the New Deal was a nice little chapter in labor waging. Uh, Cardiff, <laughs> very quickly, uh, a pass it. through Janet Yellen's brain. Do we care what the Fed thinks right now? <laughs> Honestly. I think we always care what the Fed thinks. Um, but, I mean, in, in the context of what Neil Comedy. was just saying and the jobs numbers, uh, this is a very peculiar and uh, kind of precariously balanced time for the U.S. economy <laughs> where the jobs numbers obviously were modestly disappointing. The growth numbers, the GDP growth numbers we got earlier this week yeah. were better than expected. 3%. Right? Yeah. All right. So jobs numbers, unexpectedly soft. Modestly disappointing. Modestly disappointing. GDP, unexpectedly good. What can it possibly mean if yeah. jobs go down, but productivity continues it's to rise? It's almost like non-labor is gaining all the capital. Huh. How, it, what does that mean? I mean, it's so remarkable how when uh, the market and businesses find new and more efficient ways of generating money and capital, the labor seems to shrink ever smaller. It's so good to just bring up the Fed and jobs report and keep it there. That's just where you want to be. It's quite the level of distance that uh, Rizdal and co. enjoy. Uh, one of the great jokes, I think, in, in comedy <laughs> history there is we always care about what the Fed thinks. <laughs> oh, I think. <laughs> That's just me. That's funny. 
Jesus Christ. Neil, let me continue with taxes with you for a second and ask you about something. Um, All three men at some point this week said, we want to lower the corporate tax rate in this country. President Trump said, I want it to get to 15 percent. They said that will put money in workers' pockets. Is that your experience? Is that what happens when corporations pay less tax? All right, here's the whole ballgame. No, there's no evidence of that. And there's been a lot of research out lately that supports that companies that have lower tax rates. Let's let's get rid of the myth that all companies are paying 35%. Companies are paying much less than that. And those that pay large corporations that pay much, much less than 35% are still not adding jobs in the economy. Let's get rid of that. So that kind of shakes at the assumption that just by lowering the tax rate, we're going to get more jobs. Mm -hmm. Just like adding more jobs will lead to more wages. We haven't seen either of those two Hmm. things happen. Yet, and so we're hmm. there are a couple of big bets and assumptions. So where does in that this, leave us? Uh, cut of the tax rate. One that we're going to get more jobs from it, and two that we're going to get a higher growth rate. And so, none of those things are evident quite well, yet. So, Cardiff, pick up <laughs> on that for yet. a second, and you got uh, thirty <laughs> seconds to do it in. They are banking on three percent economic growth to make like the this fucking tax Nazis plan are knocking the on the door of the studio. <laughs> Why do they want to like cut across yeah, the throat? Right. Gesture. Very aggressive <laughs> estimate. Um, the evidence, as Neil said, on tax cuts paying for themselves. Uh, isn't just scant. It's non-existent. That being said, it is theoretically possible that a lower corporate tax rate oh, could so lead to a stronger economy and more jobs growth. But it wow. depends Those on what penis pills might work. It has <laughs> to get a bigger closing like, the kinds of tax loopholes that companies have been able to take advantage of for right. a very long time. And so really it depends on the whole package and not just the specific lowering of the corporate I tax rate. I can't believe it. Okay, so he just created a it's yeah. a he out of thin air, he came up with the other side and the both siderism. Sticking to the evidence, they made it sound like there would be no reason to want to cut the corporate tax rate to 15% other than they're just completely wrong about everything or aren't telling us what they want to see happen. It's like there's no there's abs- it's not that there's scant evidence of unicorns it's that there's no evidence of unicorns although in theory if we were to open the magic portal, could be there unicorns. could be unicorns there and that's not evident quite <laughs> yet. We're just going to have to see. We're going to have to wait and see. Wait, and we are game. neutral people reporting the facts to you. Could be this. I want to piggyback on what Neela said when she said absolutely not. Uh, It's true that there's absolutely not. But, you know, that doesn't mean that no... Exactly. It's going to be a very busy month to figure out about the uniform, sure. the unicorns, because, unicorns, you know, the uniform. whatever the, the is. The uniformed sports. unicorns come These guys around. kneeling. It's really offensive. It's like, what are you talking about? They're not saying anything. That's really true. Even even when they briefly accidentally started to inform people saying there is no evidence that the argument behind this bill is in any way true, they don't follow that up with, so why do they believe it is yeah. true? Why are yeah, they following like, it? All right, so, so yeah. they say this like demonstrable proved fact, right? Lowering corporate tax rates doesn't put money in workers' pockets, doesn't create new workers to get more money in their doesn't workers' pockets. Doesn't create jobs. Right. Doesn't all right, grow. so they establish that as a fact, right? Right. And then they fucking queef it. Yeah. All right. So my parsing of this, and tell me if you guys think this is right, is that this is what it sounds like when evident fact, provable fact, runs headlong into ideology that they don't know that they're holding, right? It's not possible in the ideology that they are existing in to reconcile the fact that cutting taxes doesn't help anybody except rich people. Is this saying the same thing or not? If their job is to be these sort of agnostic referee people who look around and sort of tell you in a casual, fun, upbeat, weekly roundup kind of way what the deal is, they, anytime they feel like there's a segment of listeners that are going to disagree 
with what they're saying or be uncomfortable or disappointed, no matter how firmly based and true it is, that they immediately get like a nervousness in their gut and have to start leaning the other way, not out of even a recognizably to themselves ideological need. They just go, a lot of people aren't going to like that. Let's lean the other way. Is that the same as what you said? Or Because I think it might be just the same. It might be. Yeah, yeah. Like, Like the ideology to which they're conforming and which is shaping their worldview, it's unknown to them. They don't know they're fucking neoliberal. Yeah, so in that way, they're kind of backdoored into a kind of like congenital both-siderism. Yeah, I mean, I would use the word abused. (laughs) Right, but it is interesting to ask the origins of this kind of thing. Did this come from the political climate and they have been abused just in the same way that we've all been abused by the presence of Fox News, by the fact that you'd need a Jeffrey Lord around the table? Or is this something about economics in particular, that there's some kind of inbred... Uh, other side, like business-oriented, what will work for business standpoint that has nothing to do with the Commonwealth at all. That is like a part of the calculus of economics. Definitely a flaw inherent to economics. Yeah, they, they think that they are an objective science that are, that they're, they're divorced from developments in politics, let alone anything as like disgusting as ideology. And they think they can be objective about things that are fundamentally inflected and influenced by political ideology. So when they are making this show, are they imagining a more economic interested and sophisticated audience than like uh, what is it uh, all things considered imagines or in a weird way are they imagining the exact same audience and yet are going to talk as if like they're sort of they're imagining the the exact same audience but they're now imagining that exact same audience thinking about how is this going to impact my Roth IRA I I think that's right so when the liberals want to put their liberal hat down and forget about our goals of the sort of democracy they live in like a real meaningful political sort of uh, results that you'd aim for and just want to think about what is going to happen to my pocketbook this is the show they listen to yeah and that's and that's really a crime being done because that's not this is not a show that that is advertising itself like this is going to be your calming salve for you the passive investor the passive participant in the investment economy this is advertising itself as a show that's going to talk about the economy and it's not doing that it's it's playing a role in the economy namely to soothe the minds of those people with a lot of money bound up in yeah the it's fucking susan orlean with a fucking mortar board on her head and like the mask of a bearded trustworthy professor on her face that is Wait. a curious reference that means nothing the, to the me. The orchid thief? Is that who that is? Who, who, who's the fucking financial planner with that, short hair? Susie Orman. Susie oh, Orman, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Susie Orman. <laughs> how, in, how much do you think they're aware of that agenda at Marketplace? Well, I know that when wages came up, they didn't, the lack of wages, the word inequality was not dropped. There was no discussion of minimum unions. wage unions, yeah. any regulation that might affect wages. This was sort of, it's, it really does seem like somebody said, uh, is there a way in which you can make like your average liberal think about the economy without actually requiring them to confront sort of liberal ideas? Is there a way to do that and not like explicitly ask them to become sort of Trumpian? It's a very middle of the road. Man, that's terrifying. You, you came up, you're skeptical of this claim about the tax cuts, but you they didn't say, you know, put a cap on profits, require distribution to the workers, tax people for, you know, hiding funds abroad, moving jobs abroad. They didn't talk about minimum wage. They didn't, right. t- they didn't try to protect unions. I mean, there's no solutions at all. So in a way, by saying that the argument for it is bankrupt, it lets you sort of get mad at Trump and feel like you know better while driving the Volvo home 
and doing nothing to yeah, sort of I mean, fight it, back, right? Like they're they're reinforcing this shitty tribalism on I won't even say the left, like on the center or whatever, where you want to get mad at Trump, right? And so you're allowed to be mad at Trump during all things considered. But the second marketplace starts, uh Yeah. All of the kleptocratic, plutocratic horseshit that's being rammed down the country's throat is neutralized and it becomes totally like consequenceless and uh, unsolvable. What a precarious, peculiar situation this wage solution yeah, and, is. And like, in, in as much as that is happening every time Marketplace fucking airs, it's turning every last one of NPR's listeners into fucking accomplices of the Trump administration. That's right. And bifurcating the liberal or neoliberal voter in this way is something that I don't think originated with Marketplace, but that Marketplace as an emblem of doing, like splitting off your economically interested self from your politically interested self just shows the bankruptness, no pun intended, of your actual political views. And this is the neoliberal stance, That's basically. That's exactly right. It turns out your hatred of Trump is actually just as fucking like nebulous as your interest in the economy. Yeah, it might, Meaning, as well, might as well be a fucking hat you're wearing. Exactly. You're totally uninvested, and that pun is intended, in the political reality, other than, am I doing okay economically? I know the guys I'm supposed to hate. I know the stances I'm supposed to have. I know the human interests I'm supposed to sort of bring up. This is like destructive of our civilization. Yep. Yeah. And it produces I mean, uninformed citizens who think that bringing up relevant terminology in meaningless ways is like a sign of being sort of a knowing player. Talk about expert culture. Just go to the people of the think tanks. They have listened to their words. They have nothing to say, but you've heard from the experts, so they must be right. And yeah. you're so unchallenged. Fundamentally, no one has said anything about what you ought to do. It imagines the destruction of the federal government and liberal democracy in general as a sideshow to the economic reality, as though the destruction of this government, the, our State Department, is not being done specifically to benefit yeah. the economics. It's an almost motiveless universe. It's like Marketplace describes like a kind of matrix where no one has any real political motives or goals, but we take everything as a fact. We don't have to understand those facts. You don't say like, oh, those 145,000 new jobs, what kind of jobs are they? There's not even an effort to understand that. You just go, that's a firm meh. So listen, here's a thought. If the government can't get its act together policy-wise, maybe businesses can? I hope the one-eyed raven of Norse mythology comes to pluck their eyes from their heads so that they can travel through the financial sphere, blind to the horrors that await them there. We are going to talk about tax reform for 5 minutes and 48 seconds on this program today. And you know what? It is going to be awesome. What if, just like a certain unnamed celebrity, we could consciously uncouple the economy from the fight against climate change? What do you think? If I loaned you a little fin so you could go get yourself a snack, I'd sure, honest to Pete, expect you to pay that fin back. But some people declare bankruptcy. <laughs> How much is it taking out of your pocketbook? Oh, look! Markets go down, too. The tax bill's done. Yes, tis. The selling of the tax bill? Oh, that's just getting started. The bond market is talking. The question is whether anybody's listening. This is going to sound hard to believe, I know, but it was actually a pretty good week, economically. 
You know those meetings you go to where nothing happens, a bunch of people sit around a table, nothing gets done? Why do you keep going to those Why anyway? Do you a keep question going for to those? corporate America today. Oh, <laughs> if this is Friday, that must mean a White House shakeup. Oh, look, it is. This one with maybe some actual economic after effects. Yeah. It's my main beef. This with the is going to sound more existential than economic. I am evil. Here. Forever, <laughs> it turns out, is a very, very long, long time. time. It's a long time. Yeah. On the program today, a couple of words on taxes, Harvey on small businesses, growth. and getting the oil changed <laughs> in your electric car. What? 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 Today on the program, jobs, of course. Right? What exactly well, course. you can do in six seconds. And a reminder that capitalism, well, it doesn't really care about you. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. All right, traders this week, well, they brushed off all those murmurings from the bond market, as Dion was talking about. Also, they brushed off the other stuff. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. No, man, the rich, they really are different. Everyone knows that Mr. Hurst is one of the most successful and driven people in America. But why can't these Cornishmen keep their hands off Mr. Hurst's goal? Mr. Hurst has worked hard, and he's a job creator. He's hired them, and the earth speaks to him, and he has a special knack for finding that gold. Nobody does it better than him. The Cornish, on the other hand, are not gold finders. Instead, they are a clan-like and secretive people, known for stealing from their betters. And they can't even deny that charge, because the language they speak is a mixture of suspicious-sounding nonsense lies. There's one now! Shoot him! There we go. Oh, God, be blind. All you do is suck, suck, suck like some kind of vampire. How old are you, son? Do you know numbers? No, sir. Let's do the numbers. Let's do the numbers. Dow Industrial's up eight tenths percent on this Friday, 228 points closed at 25,803. The Nasdaq gained six tenths percent, about 49 points, 7261. SP 500 up six tenths percent there, 18 points, 27 and 86. For the five days gone by, Dow up two percent, Nasdaq up 1.7 percent, SP 500 up a percent and a half. JP Morgan Chase reported quarterly earnings down 37 percent from a year ago. You're listening to Marketplace. This is going to be very important. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. As you heard me talking about with Ways and Means Chairman Kevin Brady up at the top of the program, at the heart of both the House and Senate tax bills is a big cut in corporate tax rates. Because, as you heard him say, Republicans believe those cuts will get the economy growing faster once companies spend what they are not paying in taxes. Economics is nothing, though, if not a study of the law of unintended consequences. Marketplace's Marielle Segarra explains. If corporations get a tax cut, They could, in theory, take the money they save and use it to grow, to make acquisitions, buy equipment, hire people. But Robert H. Frank, who teaches economics at Cornell, says there's nothing stopping companies from doing those things now. The interest rates are very low. Firms are sitting on a lot of cash. If they have a profitable investment opportunity, they can undertake it right now, immediately, without any tax cut. 
Frank says corporations are more likely to use potential tax savings for a different purpose, shareholder payouts. That's what happened last time companies got a big tax break in 2004. And since then, shareholders have been pressuring companies for higher dividends. Eric Irvin heads the ETF issuer Reality Shares. The shareholders have really demanded this, where they say, as earnings are growing for this business, we want those earnings to be paid back to us in the form of dividends. Incredible. If companies use their tax savings to pay higher dividends to Uh shareholders, that could, in its own way, drive economic growth. Oh, really? Kent Smetters teaches economics at the Wharton School. Some of that money is going to be invested in other companies. Some of it's going to be consumed today. So all that is yeah, the fucking lux- luxury watch factory. But Professor Frank at Cornell offers a caveat about shareholders. They tend to be people at the top of the income. Oh, ladder. is that right? The oh, propensity fuck. to spend out of extra income on the part of the rich is very low compared to everyone else. So putting no more shit. money in shareholders' pockets will only help the economy if they spend it. I'm Mariel Segarra for Marketplace. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> wow. wow! But you, you all right? So in a way, you could like I can't uh, believe it. You could uh, make the argument that this that this story we just heard was like sort of negative about this like tax started bill. out that way, right? In, in a way, because they they've expressed some skepticism about some of the claims in the same quizzical tone that they say everything, but yes, claims that are obviously not the case. I mean, the shit that this <laughs> the point that like the money is not going to go to the workers' wages or whatever is pretty fucking slam dunk, right? Yeah, but the inability to go any step beyond that to talk about well then why did somebody think this is a solution what are alternate versions how did we get to here all the stuff that is left unsaid is to me what makes it so dangerous yes you drive home saying i listen to nbr i'm a liberal i am skeptical of this plan but you don't you're not even really ready to make a phone call you don't know what you want calm the whole time she never seemed to (laughs) indicate a problem it's hard to even find a fucking analogy that fits if you're doctor talked the way Marketplace yeah, does, yeah. they would spend a lot of time being like, actually, you know, as you've probably noticed on the news, like, there are studies that say one glass of wine helps you. There's a study that says, like, you know, like, don't drink too much wine. And yeah, we've noticed, like, a few problems uh, in your current test results. And, but we should also emphasize, like, any surgical option uh, carries its own risks. Uh, like, 25,000 people died during surgery last. And at the end of the whole conversation, you'd sort of walk away going, well, Wait, what? what do I have? And what should I get for a treatment? You didn't learn anything. You Me- just, meanwhile, the fact you showed up to your doctor's appointment blind, drunk, <laughs> unmentioned. Unmentioned. <laughs> it's just what it would feel like. It just feels like it's equivocal surrounding information well, with no urgency or plan. Right. And because this is about a like $1.4 trillion tax bill that is apparently going to be the law of the land, it really feels like, you know, is that a meteor heading toward us or is that a new God come to save us? Here, let's hear from people on both sides. Yeah. And then like, actually, the, by the end of the story, we're like, the new God theory is pretty debunked. It's like definitely a meteor coming. I'm Tracy Samuelson for Marketplace. Like, what is the point of the both sidesarism if we're going to end up on the side of an extra dollar won't get spent nearly the same extent by a wealthy family as by a middle income one? So shareholders have to spend the money that we are going to blithely give them in order to I impact mean, the economy at all. That's right. They make it sound like the solution is how do we, when we give all this money to rich people, the real question is how do we get them to spend it? How do we it? get the rich people to spend money? Yeah. What yeah. the fuck? That yeah. is not We have to the make question. the fucking luxury watches more appetizing. Well, but they don't, it's like, yeah, you're bringing up this point, which is totally true. Rich people don't spend money at the places where normal people spend money. That's not addressed, however. Yeah. I mean, and like, there's the other thing to say is if, 
if you understood the the like only thing that has been their point in all this discussion, which is the rich people aren't going to spend the money, like thanks to this corporate tax cut, it would be relevant to be like, by the way, there are other changes in this bill, such as changes to the estate tax, other things that seem geared fucking repeal towards of helping Obamacare. rich people. Yeah, things that are going to hurt poor people. To treat the tax bill like it's only a corporate tax cut and seeing that the corporate tax cut fails to justify itself according to its own logic, it is really malpractice to not put it in the context of it's, the it's other things the bill does. right up to the point and probably past the point with where it starts to seem like collusion, yeah. right? Yeah, so this is my question is going to be, why don't they connect the dots? Why isn't the like flagship economics program on the left wing radio making the case that income inequality is a problem and using this platform to do so? Is it just they care more about catering to rich people than actually addressing economic issues from a left wing perspective? Is that what's going on? No, it's because public radio. It's because yeah, it they've been abused. They have been uh, they've grown up and came of age in a climate where anybody who said anything even remotely against plutocrats and billionaires was instantly vilified by everybody on the right. And so NPR is worried about that. NPR is fundamentally public media as it were. Yeah. The people behind marketplace are fundamentally worried about being criticized by the, by the people who in their world make the news. That's a way of like, I feel like we just described in some ways, like the Democrats of the yeah. last like 10 or 20 years, but this is even worse, right? Because they're not even like arguing for a Nova. Like Seth Meyers has more journalistic courage than this. This is actually taking like a number of flaws that we see in Washington and combining them into this. Here's a too easy, oversimplified nonsense like product representing both the like self-interested neutrality of like elected Democrats and powers that be and the fake both siderism. We better keep the audience comfortable bullshit of like modern journalists. Yep. Journalists in quotation marks. Yeah, I mean they they all fucking these people all fucking live in hope of somehow attracting both sides with their both siderism. And all they really do is corrupt and putrefy the people who might have a more left-wing opinion about but economics. I, I mean, couldn't you think about NPR and public radio as exempt from that market-based impetus not, to attract to both them. sides? I know, but why not? Yeah, why not? They're not trying to sell you, sell Mercedes, or like, ad watch spots. The, yeah, exactly. They should be just as excited to get an underclass of, like, workers listening as they are, like, rich people listening. I mean, because since the uh, early 90s, there's been a long-running and wildly successful campaign to change the nature of public discourse in America to shift everything further right and to make anybody who might have even a centrist opinion think twice before voicing it. And so do you think they are thinking about themselves as uh, wanting to aim at the center because just that's the way political discourse is done or something like that? They uh, find themselves bullied into minimizing uh, views that confront actual economic reality. But bullied by... Bullied by the fear of retribution if they happen to say the truth accidentally. And who are the people who would come at them? The Peter Peterson Institute, anybody. The right in, wing? Yeah, the right wing. And I would just think that if anyone could not think about that, it could be NPR. I, isn't it? Because they're going to be vilified by the right wing no matter what they it, so it's, fucking it's say. It's something like if we could sit down with this fucking this team or whatever and start yelling at them, as we definitely would, they would say like, hey, like these people can go and sign up for an economics class. This is, that's not what we do. We provide an entertaining, comfortable product that, you know, lets them know there is a problem with the tax bill. We're not going to do deep dives on fucking marks or we're not going to, you know, that sort of easy, right. like I'm gee, gee whiz. Like I, I hear what you're saying, but we don't see that as our job. And I would go so far as to say, if I'm Mitch McConnell or whatever force of like reptilian evil is driving the sort of evil ship, if I had to, 
design my ideal media landscape, it would not be all Fox News. Yeah. It would be like Breitbart propaganda on the far right. It would be Fox News in the middle. And then on the far left would be exactly Marketplace that would pacify the left by allowing them to feel they're a little smarter than the Republicans who are passing the laws that like dominate. Mm -hmm. In other words, like by it, it actually does the work of sort of right wing greed to allow you to point out the safest part of that's what's wrong, but never discuss any real action or real responsibility beyond knowing corporate tax rates won't raise wages. Yep. That's what we're saying. We're essentially saying that th these people are in league with the right-wing agenda yeah. setters. Functionally, they are yeah. a mechanical part in a gigantic apparatus that's directed, run, and organized by a vast right-wing conspiracy. And obviously, it is a crucial part of that claim to say the obvious, that their listenership, by and large, does not regard them in that way. Nope. Because, well, and I think, like, we might agree with Kai Riz Rizdal, whatever, this guy, Mr. Yeah. G Wiz, man. G Wizdal? <laughs> yeah, G Wizdal. I think there's a thing he hit, one of his defenses I might agree with, which is, this is what the audience wants. It and may the very well be. opiates? Yeah. It may very well be that the affluent, uh, thinking adult left in modern America today is not so interested in thinking or so interested in left it does feel so good. much yeah. as it's interested in its own affluence and a kind of, uh, like what would you describe it? A, a frosting liberalism that has no fucking yeah, cake. I would yeah. say sticker liberalism. Sticker yeah. liberalism. Just have the right little stickers. Yeah, and that's that is an intensely political ideology. Yep. In a way, it's more dangerous than the Fox News propaganda. Much, machine. much more. I mean, I if think you this were is talking, why we're about drawn it. to it. Yeah. You know. I'm Kai Rizal, and this is Marketplace. Marketplace brought to you by American Public Media. Fucking the Franny Felderson Foundation. The wealthy, evil interests that run this country are proud supporters of Marketplace. Uh, some months ago, we reported on the sinking ship, and you might recall we lost correspondent Steve Selzner. And now, we are surprised to learn reports have surfaced about Steve starting his own fiefdom on the remains of the ship. We go now to Amy Jones Blocker interviewing Steve the Pirate of his own kingdom. Unfortunately, I've had to murder your reporter as she did not submit to the rule of me, Steve. I'm afraid that in the kingdom of the drowned, the man who best steals the last life jacket is king. Little Amy didn't pay proper respect and she's now hanging out with Davy Jones. She can file her story with her low per diem in the cold, icy water that fucking killed her. Steve, I noticed you brought up our per diem policy over at APM's I seized the fucking per diem, baby. I, I now am the king in a very rollicky sea of a moneyless kingdom where only force is needed in your wallet. I've got a wallet full of death and strength, and that's good enough for me. Now, do you, when you look around you, Steve, do you yeah. see other human beings, or is this a kind of leer in the forest moment for you? Where well, do you mean living other human beings? My kingdom is literally built on the corpses floating beneath us that were made of those who couldn't afford to stay with the living who now use them as a ground. It's just one of the innovations we came up with in Steve's kingdom. Everyone we oppress becomes a structure to support us, both literally in terms of walking around on the sea 
and literally in terms of we've taken every resource they possess and have them as our own. That's a little too socialist of a policy that we like to uh, engage in here in Marketplace. I'll be honest. On the one hand, I'm a hardcore right-wing plutocrat willing to kill as many people as possible and use their bodies as the literal fuel for my machine of tyranny. On the other hand, I'm kind of a centrist, you know? I'd like to uh, to butt in here. I'm uh, Gorgo, uh, Steve's chief uh, sea priest, and uh, I, uh, I've, I've been hearing a lot of pushback about the uh, uh, inevitable rise of Pluto, the god of wealth, whom, as we all know, lies beneath the sea. Also beneath the sea, sure. Yeah, sure. And uh, I've been hearing a lot of my uh, parishioners saying that they uh, they would like to deliberately drown themselves to sink to the bottom of the ocean, thereby contacting as close as is possible to human flesh, uh, Pluto's kingdom. Gorgo, let me ask you, is there any role for that kind of moralizing in today's economy of Steve's kingdom, built as it is on corpses of the once upriser deceased people well i'll i'll I'll, uh, I'll quote you the wisest thing i ever heard which was uh when i took the uh stopped rolex from the uh waterlogged white wrist of a first class passenger sure. and that was perfect silence he didn't say anything that's true to silence here on steve's kingdom quietism on the high seas there's plenty of free speech in our kingdom but if you want to get ahead it's silence that speaks loudest freedom to rise economic mobility on a sea that's mobile cold and scary seems like if you're a corpse one day you'll rise no matter what gorgo steve listen thanks for your help absolutely take care and long live the reign of our good god pluto ahoy kai are you cornish Gorgo, the secretly Cornish priest of the sea in Steve's <laughs> pirate kingdom. Steve, you recall, once That's right, a marketplace correspondent. Well, across the sea. Why can't you keep your dirty Cornish hands off my sea gold? Cornish hens, did you say? Hands. He can't <laughs> Cornish afford Cornish hens. hens. <laughs> the last of the Cornish hens is down with the champagne in my subterranean plutocratic vault of safety which I assure you exists and is not a lie. It's the very same bounty I plan to share with everyone once they've submitted to me completely and helped me root out the traitors that endanger all of our lives. Once I have complete power, I can't wait to hand over that power and the many goods which you can't see, but which I am currently protecting on your behalf like a benevolent father. Steve, would a rise in interest rates alter your calculus? Oh, a rise in interest rates would mean I'd have to start cutting jobs, of which there are none, which means right, right, right. the main job, which is being a corpse that I walk upon, would have to grow quickly, as it is the only job. You raise interest rates, I'm killing kids and stepping upon them in my aquatic nightmare kingdom. Here in our water world, the uh, stock phrase, a rising tide raises all boats, in fact, turns out to be quite incorrect. That's true. We actually don't acknowledge the existence of tides if we can avoid it. With there being no land, there's nothing to judge the tides by. That's right. You might think you're on land, Kai, but here in the kingdom of Steve, we don't acknowledge there is any land. It's more of a Kevin Costner situation. Seems like the wool's pulled over my eyes and the wool's made of sea foam. But in the meantime, it's all alligators and elbows here on Nightmare Theater. Honest <laughs> the to Marketplace shoot-off. <laughs> Honest to Pete. In 2014, Pew reported that NPR is one of the most trusted news sources in America. With one caveat, among conservatives, NPR is not regarded as trustworthy. Giovannoni's research shifted programming decisions and led to the rapid growth of the network's audience. The weekly QM metric is defined by Nielsen as the total number of different persons who tune to a radio station during the course of a day part for at least five minutes. 
NPR's weekly QM tripled under Giovanoni's tutelage, and the number of paying member stations doubled. But the research also encouraged NPR to become more cautious. Tori Malatia, then the president and general manager of WBEZ, put it more bluntly, quote, What happened in the commercial marketplace began to happen in the public radio marketplace. There was this unarticulated but passionately held belief that there was a perfect formula and that if we used that formula in our community, we could be as successful as other communities that used it. But after believing that myself for a long time, I'd argue that public radio is at its most successful when it doesn't follow formula. Data is just one tool for ascertaining what works. And it's a shame that public radio is scared away from what doesn't show well in the Arbitron book or hasn't proven itself somewhere else or isn't understandable on first hearing. The effect has been a system that pushes experimentation out of local markets that rely on public support, and also one that depresses experimentation at NPR. Morning Edition and All Things Considered are the most valuable assets that NPR distributes. They are aimed at a drive-time audience, consume important hours on a station's daily clock, and, thanks to Giovanoni's audience research, found a devoted audience that donates to the stations that provide them. Uh, how Kai Rizdahl, radio host, does it from the series How I Do It <laughs> in the New York motherfucking times. Kai Rizdahl is the host of Marketplace for American Public Media, broadcast by more than 500 public radio stations nationwide. He and his wife, Stephanie, who works part-time for Oracle, bing, bing, are the parents of four children. So Kai takes you through his day. 3.45 a.m., I'm up and doing taxes. Go fuck yourself. Usually I'd run, but not today. 6 a.m. shower. I got to be out by 6.15 so the boys can get in. Tate sleeps through both alarms. Aiden gets up first, then Soren and Stephanie, my wife, <laughs> and live last. Coffee, snuggles, out the door by 6.45. Okay. Can we, highlights can we go over the fact that from 3.45 a.m. to 6 a.m.? Taxes. He's doing ta- That's how much we're in need of reform, bro. <laughs> he And then he wants credit for his would-be running, and then he doesn't shower until 6 a.m. He doesn't even really say he wakes up at 3.45 a.m. That's just he's doing taxes then. What a mysterious thing that he spends more than two hours on the taxes this particular morning. He's a former hotshot naval aviator and Pentagon hand turned Chinese-speaking foreign service officer. And then he gets hired as an intern for QED, KQED. As what? So Just so he's an intern? He's gone from cutting together tape. He entered public radio at 34, having served in the Navy and gone to business school. I had to develop his radio personality to get out of the shit. <laughs> what do you think has to happen for you to wash out of both naval, <laughs> naval yeah. aviation and the U.S. Foreign Service? Yeah, why? Most people stay no in that. Who qualifies? Yeah, most stay. people stay in either. You have to be pretty smart, right? Yeah. He was raised in Europe as a child, first England for five years, then Denmark for three. There's I wonder if he knows Nick Loeb. <laughs> He's like, mm, mm. you know what this hot dog needs? <laughs> what, whatever talents, skills, intelligence he might possess, he has cultivated this personality where he's sort of like a weatherman without the weather. Like the sort of faux joviality and radio man stylings of him with his like whoas and woos and like sliding into every little syllable. It seems like he could be saying anything in a certain way and it would sound just the same. How does he go from intern to 
Yeah, that it just he never tells the story as far as I can tell. He's like, and then one thing led to another, and they da, 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 da. in October of 2016, uh, someone from PBS's NewsHour interviewed Kyra's doll, posing the following problem: unemployment's at five percent, relative low. Ten million jobs appear to have been created during the Obama administration. But a new survey finds that many Americans are experiencing high levels of economic anxiety, a factor that will play into how they vote. Why the mismatch? Kai Rizdahl is brought on. Marketplace host Kai Rizdahl is with us again. Kai, when we first did this uh, a year ago, we expected things to get better. Why are people more anxious now and feeling less financially secure? The thing about the economy, Hari, is that we measure it in numbers, right? Things like the unemployment rate. It's like but people experience hosting. it uh, through how they feel. And what they're feeling now is anxiety, possibly because the election is drawing near, possibly because uh-huh. they sense that the headline numbers of unemployment at, at uh, 5% and gross domestic product growing at, you know, a percent and a half plus or minus, they're not feeling that in their lives. While at the same time, food prices are going up and gas is bopping around, you know, two and a half, three dollars a gallon, the whatever problem, it is. Kai. Um, people don't feel that security that they really would like to feel <laughs> seven years now uh, into an economic expansion. You know, all the numbers that you what? just rattled off, what's interesting is that there, your, your survey also reveals that there's a lack of trust in the data itself. Oh, yeah. So this was, to me anyway, Whoa. one of the most uh, interesting and disturbing things about this entire survey. We asked people whether they trust government economic data, the stuff that we do on Marketplace all the time, consumer spending, the unemployment rate, all of that stuff. Yeah. 25% of all do. Americans completely distrust government economic data. And then you drill down a little bit and you ask them, uh, to to uh, who they're voting for and how they feel about government data. 48% of Donald Trump voters distrust government data. 5% Shucker. of Hillary Clinton voters distrust the economic data. And I think mm-hmm. if you look at what's happening out there on the campaign trail uh, and some of the rhetoric that's coming from the Trump camp and from the candidate himself, that sort of stands to reason that his voters are going to distrust that data. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, this is from October 18th, 2016. This is not Jesus. like this is not like the build up to the we're trying to figure everything out. Everyone basically knew that already, I would say at that point in time. Yeah. And like the the thing that's so infuriating is that this guy who has I would call it privileged access to the like raw data that would might support like a well-formulated opinion about shit. Sure. Has no interest in figuring out why this is, how this came to be. It's his fucking uh, job description yeah. to be able to offer historical reasons for why economic realities are the reality that we presently live in. Instead, all he has to offer is a uh, very thin dichotomy between numbers and feelings, I yeah. believe, was the yep. dis- distinction he made. To get into distrust as a feeling of government, like numbers or whatever, you'd actually want to, like, for one thing, the Trump voters like might believe the government, the Obama government, is literally lying with those numbers. Right. But like I distrust those government exactly. numbers, not because I think they're a lie, but because I don't think Kai Rizdal and the hundred and forty five thousand like new jobs created in August, like it paints a very accurate right. picture. Uh, so I distrust it as a frame, but not in terms of are they liars? Yeah. yeah. After he talks about the numbers that he discusses on Marketplace, when he then says the numbers he doesn't discuss, like food prices and gas prices, and he doesn't say wages, but that would be included. That's an engine of distrust in the government's economic numbers, because instead of talking about what actually affects people's lives, you're talking about 
macro job creation. And what about the damage he sort of does to the idea of assessing an economic situation when he basically says your experience is a feeling, Yep. you know, whereas because it's a fact that it's been an economic expansion for seven years when you could, there are numbers out there that would indicate that expansion is happening with very specific people who aren't fucking me. My feelings are facts that are backed up by numbers that he just doesn't think are serious because he'd rather report sort of meaningless like, yeah and maybe dead. they're not serious for him like you know in other words maybe he just is not tuned into the middle and lower class and what numbers matter or at or at worst maybe he's part of the uh, sort of agenda to divert it, your attention away from yeah us. ignore those people yeah. okay the one overarching rule that these people will always conform to is that to discuss any structural aspect of the American economic system is to wade into ideological waters that are much too dangerous and shark-infested for somebody as rational and reasonable right. no as Kai Rizdal. Yep. Yeah, and to pretend there's a marketplace that that doesn't have a political regime yeah. that has made rules about how that marketplace will work and just say, like, we're dealing with just pure marketplace is to accept the existing political regime's laws that dictate winners and losers. And then you end up being like, weird, people think their feelings are truer than the numbers. And, oh, isn't it weird? Wages for no reason never go up. Yep. It's not fucking weird. There's no yeah. such thing as a marketplace without politics and your inability to, like, report accurately on these two things fucks everything up. Boy, th- here... This, this is this is Marketplace from APM. I'm Kai Rizdal. March 8th, 2013. Pre-Piketty. There's a video that's been out there the past week or so that's been getting some buzz. Not in and of itself unusual. Videos go viral all the time as well. Very oh, helpful. Visualizations of academic studies on wealth inequality, however, not so much. We asked Chrissy Clark from the Wealth and Poverty Desk to do some asking around. Why are these videos going viral? It's not viral? a flashy video. Six minutes long, moody music, a guy with a slight southern twang. The bottom 40% of Americans barely have any of the wealth. I mean, it's hard to even see them on the chart. Lots of charts showing how Americans think wealth is distributed compared to how it actually is. Not the first time we've heard this stuff, so why has it suddenly got more than 3 million hits? <laughs> I found it through my boyfriend. He found it through his friend, Brent. Brent saw it on Facebook and has no idea who made it. His best guess? Some guy in his bedroom who said, you know, people need to know about this. I'm just going to make a little animation here. Did she just turn to her boyfriend's best um, guess? Someone named Politizane posted the video back in November on YouTube. A reporter from the magazine Mother Jones tracked him down a few days ago. He wanted to stay anonymous, but described himself as a freelance designer who'd been struck by research from two professors. Dan Ariely happens to be one of them. And I think that what made it big was that one of the actors from Star Trek actually put it on his Facebook. That actor, George Takei, played this. Sulu, and he says he's been thinking a lot about the shrinking middle class. Talk about dealing with inequality. Tracing the path by which her so, boyfriend uh, found the video. Visually, powerfully. Takei happens to have 3.5 million followers on Facebook, a sort of super connector, says That's the Max number I needed Spedovan, to understand who inequality. social networks at George Mason University. Turns out that Takei's post was originally from the website Mashable, which Setsovat says makes a lot of money posting videos it thinks will go viral and selling ads next to them. Yep. It's an initial capitalism to exploit anything that looks like an opportunity. Even if the video itself is a critique of capitalism. Boom! I'm Chrissy Clark Nailed from Marketplace. My fucking boyfriend. And now we understand wealth inequality. It's always why would a fucking... Why would a wealth inequality video be gaining so much traction on the internet? Probably because of Mashable and George Takei. Not because people are interested in this. 
Could we? That's so funny. We, I mean, even if you're going to do this, you could at least follow who owns Mashable, how they made their money to buy Mashable. Because you could probably get back to like tech billionaires or millionaires and you would see a sort of full circle. Now let's confront economic inequality. Even that would be doing too much research for marketplaces taste, I really think. I mean, this is so perfectly emblematic of the missing of the point that is endemic at marketplace that I'm glad I found it by searching for the word inequality, which is really, of course, this is ostensibly a story on wealth inequality, but as we know, having listened to it, it is not a story on wealth inequality at all. It is a half-hearted attempt to trace the virality of a video where you really don't even do a good job at that. And you start with your fucking boyfriend's friend on Facebook. Yeah. And the most interesting thing you arrive at is the one thing you don't pursue. Right. Which is the fact that people are making a shitload of money advertising on the back of it, but with no discussion of who yeah, or like the mechanics yeah. of this. There's also the only fact that we even start to gather about the landscape. It gets smuggled in by accident. You just hear and be like, "The bottom forty percent gets a very tiny." Not discussed. You can't even see it on the chart. My boyfriend found it on, and you just move away. Like you zoom at full speed away. Makes me so angry. We, I don't even think they really established how viral the video went. Yeah, I mean the the tone of this segment is the most disgusting one yet because the second you were afraid as a listener they might have to actually talk to a fucking poor right like find out what poor people's lives are like you fly back into the like the cyber realm of facebook and representational space and george takei it's so weird that there really are no individual poor people in in the marketplace that we get to hear yeah inequality colon capitalism's squeaky wheel january 2014 this is marketplace from apm i'm kai rizdal minimum wage and what that dollar amount ought to be has been in the news most recently of course last night thanks to the state of the union but really minimum wage is kind of a proxy for a bigger discussion about rising inequality in this country (sighs) rich getting richer and the poor not Harvard Business School historian wow, Nancy why? Kane is here to talk about what that means for corporate America. Good to talk to you again, Nancy. <laughs> what? Always a real pleasure, Kai. Can we just go from minimum wage to what it means for corporate America? This is, we're going to look at Apple's bottom line. I can't believe we're already back to corporate fucking America and away from wages. The poor? The poor. Not. A couple of ways to go with income inequality in corporations. So I'll take maybe the most obvious one. Um it is of interest to them because uh, of purchasing power of individuals, right? If there's greater inequality, then wow. the lowest rung can yep. buy less stuff, right? Well, That's- yeah, not just the lowest rung, but the bottom 90%, right? So if you think whole about ladder, like, how much income goes to the top 1% in 2012, and these are good numbers, it's close to 23%. Hmm. Um, and the average person in, making, you know, in that top 1% makes about $717,000 a year versus 53000 for everyone else. So that's a lot of people, Most people with do not make a lot less money to buy things and very little hope in some sense, at least evidenced by the numbers, of getting sense. lots more purchasing power. Well, and that's the next question, right? That idea of hope. What do we know about whether or not seeing rising inequality is demotivating for those not in the top tranches of the economy? Demotivating. Mobility is a proxy, right? And that's not a bad proxy, right? We know large amounts of social and economic mobility, which do not correlate with inequality, income income or wealth, produce more GDP, right? More social order. You know, you can reason inversely that lots and lots of inequality accelerating, intensifying is not a good thing. What do you make then of um, the fact that workers are, uh, as has been shown by the numbers every month that we report from time to time in the last five years, uh, workers are ever more productive in this economy. Ugh. 
What do we make of the thing that has been shown uh, as we've been reporting every month from time to time? The workers are productive, but here's my concern. When they see the inequality, will that be demotivating? Will they be sadder and less yeah. productive? What he's, what he's really asking is, will the economy go down if people are demotivated from working, yeah. knowing that their greater productivity never translates into increased rates? Imagine, do we maybe not want to tell them so much about inequality? Yeah. Imagine looking at inequality and thinking, all right, here are my concerns. One, how will these people getting fucked continue to buy stuff? Couldn't that hurt the market? Or, and two, when they find out how badly they're getting fucked, is that going to hurt their productivity that is totally benefiting not them, but the rich people yeah. who are feeding off of them parasitically? What a wonderful way to talk about this issue. Jesus fucking Christ. Right, but the way we account for that is that technology in all kinds of forms, right, be it like a better information system for someone at the call center or a better way of timing French fries electronically Mm -hmm. makes McDonald's workers more productive. So a huge amount of that productivity is really, ironically, about the use of labor and technology where the Mm. emphasis is on advances in the lab. Therefore, they don't deserve more money. That top 1% making the $717,000 a year. Average. Average, right. So let's say somebody makes that and has a family of four, and then somebody else makes 53000 uh, on average and has a family to of four. To get that, you have There's to There's a disparity include. of disposable income, right? What does the guy no at the shit. top or the woman at the top do with the extra change that, in theory, the person at the bottom half or bottom 90% is using to put food on the table? The vast majority, right, (laughs) goes into reinvestment, right? Buying more stocks, putting more money in your pensions, you know, putting more money in your bond account, using money that can then make money for you, right, and be taxed often if you hold it long enough at long-term capital gains rates. So there's this kind of very interesting cycle where – and Keynes wrote a lot about this, right? You actually Mm -hmm. want to put money directly in the hands of the the bottom 90 percent so it will get spent and generate jobs and generate revenue for companies. And you know, oil the making the cuts for most of the guy. Yep. Nancy Kane yep. at the Harvard Business School. Nancy, Literally. thanks so much. Unfucking. Basically, all right. If you look at McDonald's, right? Like, you know, sure. Are are you able to do more business with less workers there? Yeah, you are because they've learned how to operate all this different machinery. They're getting very efficient, and so you are paying less people. Right. Right. But you're not paying those people more, even though you're requiring more. You're giving all the credit to the fry timer. And then when less people are going to come into the McDonald's, by the way, eventually, because the people coming into the McDonald's are also the people who, in theory, you're hiring for your McDonald's. And the rich guy who owns nine Memphis, Tennessee McDonald's who wants to end social welfare would collapse his fucking customer base. But instead, he fights it every like every bit to like keep those customers alive and shopping at his McDonald's, takes the money and doubles down on exploitation, looking for businesses who are able to exploit that same population even more successfully than his McDonald's, and then is able to get profits from their exploitation too. Right. And nobody mentions the fact that someday when all these fucking people die, your fry timer will stop beeping in a closed fucking McDonald's and you'll be in a yacht somewhere running for your fucking lives. Or at the very least, that is the that is the way in which they've seen inequality as a problem. They're just like, how do we keep the fry buyers in your store? Yeah, like, that's right. What, are, what percentage of the $717,000 could we entice the rich people to maybe spend in the McDonald's to keep the fry timer going? And she's saying- 
They don't spend any of it into McDonald's. It's all reinvested in, into capital. It's all it's all hidden away. And Keen said you have to put money in the hands of these other people. And then he says, I'm Kai Rizdal. See you later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like basically all they want to do is buy more timers so that there will be less people working there. There'll be more automated shit or whatever. Of course. Of course. Which is why it's not ironic, by the way, if you read your Karl Marx, this is foreseen pretty inceptively. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, do you guys think that Kyra's doll ended that segment on what he thought was the hot note because Kyra's doll is like a secret Marxist or something? Uh, yeah, this is a, like, or is he, yeah, is he trying to telegraph any kind of more responsible economic reporting in his like cut point yeah. decisions? All right. So the terrifying thing about the possibility that Kyra's doll is actually like a caged Marxist, no right? Way. Or just even left leaning. Yeah, even, whatever. Yeah. Is that he feels like he has to use like Straussian esoteric encoding to get mm-hmm. any of it out onto the airwaves, right? Yep. That like 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 all this person had to do was in Kyrostal's mind to like further a left leaning economic program is to mention John Maynard Keynes and uh like government intervention in economics that he represents. And like that's like he's gonna like let the uh, confused listener go to the library or whatever <laughs> and pick out the structure of economic systems from right. the shelves. I mean, yeah, that seems generous. I don't, I fear that even that is not, he went to, I mean, I mean, it can't be true because yeah. it's so fucking absurd. Yeah. You have to bend all the way over backwards so that you can lick your own asshole to save anything about Kai Rizdal's soul. It's not like any of this discussion would be confusing for him or anything that's a conversation. I mean, he went to like business school or whatever. He thinks about this stuff all the time. Surely, if he wanted to, he could get to some substantive thing like in a meaningful way during one of the billions of segments we've seen. Well, and this is Nick's joke about imagining the Nazis on the other side know, of the glass making it. the cut sign is really, I mean, who are, are there those people? Like, this is the thing about it being NPR is you don't imagine these corporate overlords wanting ad revenue directing the editorial yeah. content of their news program. So who are the Nazis outside of Kai Rizdal's door? It sounds like there is a Nazi giving the cut sign inside Kai result right now that we that on the sort of affluent comfortable status quo left there there's knowledge of what issues are in a sort of permanent uh stasis and you can safely be left about and what things you just keep treating like they're hopeless global trends to keep your eye on but that you you just cut off before you reach any sort of action point what you do is you start with all the money being at the top and you make the discussion entirely about like now how do we get them to give it to like the bottom 90 percent as opposed to pointing out how are they able to get so much of the money we are all generating it isn't a redistribution to say like guess what these the top whatever percentage of the people are not the ones producing all the shit it is an exploitive relationship the question isn't how do you get the guy who stole your wallet to give you a bunch of the money back right you know you need to fairly address wallet security yeah i mean the bottom line about this shit is that it's all the kind of journalism that thinks all it has to do is report. Like, there's an unusual number of fires over in Woodtown, and like uh, the civic institutions that exist will put two and two together. Right? Well, maybe maybe we should have a fire department right. on the woody side of the city or whatever. But 
those institutions don't exist. And Kyber's doll is not covering the lack of them. He's just continuing to uselessly throw like uh, help me messages from the hundredth floor of a skyscraper, imagining that some cop's going to see one of them and send somebody up. It's like a coming attraction for a journalism that never happens. It always yeah. feels like this is your this is a preamble, this is your intro, this is your entertainment tonight thing or whatever. Yeah. And like don't right after this we'll like we'll it's really gonna, it's dig about in. To get serious, folks. Yeah, which it never does. To me, like one of the things that's so depressing about the impossibility of having like a genuine, thoughtful, in-depth, like liberal discussion of economics on NPR is this idea of a wild asymmetry in a window that always moves against the very solutions I think we need. And yeah, and and why? Why? And why? By the way, here's a personal factoid about Kyrie's doll. This is self-reported. He is an incorrigibly terrible gift giver. Usually, he says, he gives his wife, quote, some picture of Cash. the kids. <laughs> some picture of the kids. <laughs> Merry Christmas, honey. It's a picture I took of the kids. <laughs> you know the kids, right? Here are the kids I made you make. Wait a minute. This this fifth photo is an <laughs> amendment to our prenup. <laughs> what, is, what is this? He's like, yeah, just sign all the, the photos. Just sign all the photos. <laughs> Hold on. I got to go for a run. <laughs> Public media was limited to broadcast, an inherent conflict existed between the mission and the audiences that it needed to ensure its survival. As William Donald Seymour notes in his thesis exploring NPR's economic pressures, because public, as in taxpayer funding, does not adequately support public media, quote, listeners control the purse strings of public radio. Direct contributions from the audience account for the majority of the operating budget of many local stations. Money from those stations, in turn, makes up about 40% of National Public Radio's budget. NPR can't afford to anger a large portion of its audience because its entire economic model would collapse. So even before the internet drastically changed traditional business models, public media has had the same problem that plagues commercial media. Market dynamics exclude entire groups, particularly audiences in low-income communities who were generally perceived as less attractive listener-donor bases. Consequently, quote, the stories aimed at low-income communities have a very behind-the-museum-glass mentality, says Alvarez, the John S. Knight journalism fellow who focuses on the information needs of low-income families who are generally ill-served by the system. The way media like NPR or CNN or even Fox News is presented is generally to somebody's benefit. Like the reason that uh, objective media is objective in the way that it seems to be objective is because it's to somebody's benefit. And the 
thing to whose benefit it is in America is a kind of right-wing economic state where capital is mainly concentrated in private hands or whatever. And the reason that most most Americans think that that's natural is that they've been told that by media. The dial of the machine of the American media complex was once set to a different setting. Like during the New Deal and FDR, whatever you think the New Deal actually did economically, the dial of the fucking media was definitely set to a different setting. And it took from 1945 to probably 1970 for the forces of capital in private hands in America to drag the needle over to something else. And that's where we are now. We're living in the world that uh, was the correction that American private capital subjected the New Deal to. I mean, if, if Ryan succeeds in like modifying Medicare and Medicaid in 2018, the New Deal in all of its forms is going to be undone. And we're going to be right back to where we were in 1929. And, and the ghost of Thomas Jefferson will uh, will gaze over the republic and say, why didn't the free press and the institutions thereof save America from this hideous fate? And we will tell him what? It wasn't in the dial. We, the dial that, was, what do you mean, dial, sir? I mean, we, we, if, we, if we have to- It wasn't in the dial. Like, literally, what is the problem? Did we right. just all get dumb? Was it the phones? Was it- TV? Was it cartoons? Was it the fact that we were all that, that, I don't know, or did it go labor first? And did we have to get exploited by the capitalists so that we don't pay attention to anything except like the reality shows and we don't pay I mean, attention? It, it might, what is it? It might even be as easy as telling Thomas Jefferson that, look, Hamilton won. America became a country dedicated to the accumulation of private capital and not to the distribution of political power to like a yeomanry farmer thing where uh, political power was never concentrated anywhere, but distributed over the entire voting population. But, Citoyen, why didn't the newspaper men save America from that fate? Why weren't these um, interested parties uh, having opinions thrust before them every day on the daily on placards and, uh, what do you call them? Sandwich board? No, no, the, the, the way to refer to a big newspaper, like the broadsheets. The broadsheets. <laughs> why, why didn't the broadsheets scream out as to the injustice of this transformation? Well, because the broadsheets were all owned by forces of private and concentrated oh, capital. I shouldn't have let that happen. Well, and I, I also think something... Something happened uh, when you read like Tocqueville talking about the citizens. There is a sense that even if you are like a poor sort of tramp who who does nothing but you know never leaves your your village in three months of the year, you can't fucking eat or whatever. There's a real sense when in some kind of old fashioned America that we are were a classless society, not in the sense that there aren't poor people, but that that guy that poor like tramp or whatever was basically willing to shout at whoever and say like actually no my experience is such and such and that they felt like their opinion meant something and so when the broadsheet said like we're doing fucking great or hey work harder and you can like be as rich as Thomas Jefferson you said like you know, fuck you that Thomas Paine says you're the problem or whatever. <laughs> There's a fucking, this idea of common sense or a common sort of right to have an opinion, it got replaced by this idea of like, hey, shut up, you you fucking poor idiot, and maybe like we'll get you a bus ticket and you can be yeah, rich one day that's too. Right. We really you took are. took reports on that, right? Yes. The, the future aristocrats of the, the American poor. The, the idea is we have always sort of been this country of temporarily embarrassed millionaires, but we used to think that didn't have any bearing on the value of our opinions and it seems like increasingly we became convinced somehow that uh, until we're the millionaires our opinion 
I don't know. It just isn't as valuable. Yep. Or, or we got out of the habit of having one or learning things, I guess. And like the, the fact that we've fallen so far that private, as it were, aristocratic ownership of a media organ is like the thing we want to get back to. That's like the thing that Jeff right. Bezos represents when he owns the fucking Washington Mother Post. Fuck. Like, give me a break. The, the game is over. Yeah. I mean, in some ways you can say the problem is that this whole thing was like founded by rich uh, gentlemen who are not being good to everyone, but mostly being good to each other. But that there seemed to be when they weren't fucking, you know, murdering their slaves or whatever, there was some kind of instinct that was at least a ghost of noble and that our rich people fucking suck. I think that the people who had set this whole thing up really believed that shame would scare people out of making a certain kind or uh, a certain kind of false claim or a, fa- a false claim at a certain volume or with a certain tenor because they would be screamed down by the, right. the rest of the reasonable masses. And as we just sort of dictated, yeah, it turns out the screaming down had something to do with money. Uh, maybe in a two-party like republic where there's only going to be these two parties that basically start to operate tribally, like you'd need to have duels still. You need to actually have there be some consequence to like, I called you a liar and you're like, fuck this. Like, you can't just call me. Now it's like built in. We all are calling each other liars. You know you're going to be called a liar anyway. Why not lean into it and fucking lie? That's part of what I would say was A, inconceivable to the founders and B, we haven't much progressed past. Like, in other words, we don't really know what to do when someone who is telling the truth in good faith is being shouted down by all these bad faith people and vice versa. We really, we still publish op-eds on this, it seems like. Yeah. 2017, I saw in the New York motherfucking Great Lady Times. 2017 was the year that the news cycle accelerated up to Trump speed. Good reporting, New York Times. What the fuck are you going to do about it? Yeah. You are literally the ones who could do anything about it. What the fuck is the New York Times even fucking doing? What the doing? fuck are we Jesus. doing? <laughs> the New York Times. Fuck. The New York Times saves most of its pushback for thoughtful critics of their shitty work, not God for the fucking liars in power. I mean... I don't even, you know, these goddamn like Appalachia ruffians who, who <laughs> fucking, I swear to God, are ready to have duels with one another about like Chevy versus Ford. I know that's a stereotype that I shouldn't fucking like Chevy, claim. right? But seriously, <laughs> why don't they get mad at the people who are lying to them? They fucking know it's all fucking lies and they're not even disappointed. That's how good Chevy is. No, I mean, Chevy's fine. Listen, don't get me wrong. I'm a Chevy man. <laughs> this is how fucking insane America is. Can we fucking, can we remember that there are things where we are rooting for brands? There are sports where the athlete is a car and you're rooting yeah, for right. the brand of the fucking car. I just drove through Youngstown, Ohio, and there's a big plant, I imagine, there <laughs> that's, that with a huge billboard the size of the sky that says, home of the Chevy Cruze. It's like that okay, brand of well, car. That one model. <laughs> what, what are we doing here? You know what makes me proud of my my hometown, the Chevy Cruze. Oh, what did you say? They stopped making that model? Oh, well then, no, it's just meth then. Yeah. Just the meth. I mean, we live, I mean, yeah, I don't, Thomas Jefferson, I like to take Thomas Jefferson around or whoever the I fuck. I always think about it. Anybody who like, lo- like really believed the American Republic and I would just like them to fucking sit in on the meetings where it's like, you know, the uh, all-powerful business Amazon is thinking about moving its second headquarters here and the people are just like, the fucking mayor is just like, we will enslave all 
the, uh, whoever you want and make them Muriel Bowser is like, whoops, my trousers fell off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Can we change the fucking constitution? Can we murder children? There's no fucking limit. We'll declare, like, the, the most noble citizens we have. We'll call them witches and burn them for your amusement. Anything for you to come here and spin fucking sprinkled coins. Sprinkled coins in our region. I mean, how the fuck is there supposed to be a democracy when we are so enslaved and depraved of values fucking for a company that didn't even pay taxes like that they were supposed to pay for fucking years I mean we don't believe in anything home of the Chevy Cruze put it on the fucking grave there is no What?